When I'm asked to speak at a, a church or a conference, I will oftentimes wear this necklace. And this was uh, given to me um, in Australia. Uh, several years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference in Melbourne. And the conference focused on the reconciliation between the Euro-Australians and the Aboriginal Australians. And it was a beautiful conference with worship and prayer and teaching that focused on this reconciliation. Um, when, I was, uh, when I got to, the, uh, to Melbourne, uh, the, the host uh, conference very graciously assigned me to a person who was my host and who was my uh, person who drove me around, who took me out to eat, and I stayed at his house and met his family and met members of his church. He was just a very gracious person who was very kind and hospitable to me. Um, and this person always wore um, this necklace around his neck. Um, and uh, never had it, uh, never took it off. He was, it was always around his neck. Um, and for several days, he was my host. He kind of did everything for me. And then as I'm getting ready to leave to return to the United States, he drives me to the airport. And I check my bags and I'm about to turn around and say goodbye to him when I noticed that he wasn't wearing this necklace. And I was about to ask him when I looked down and I saw that it was actually in his hand and he was handing it to me. And uh, he said that um, the necklace was made out of cow bone, but it was actually in the shape of a whale tail. And the whale in his culture, in Samoan culture, represented um, the people, uh, the person who was the wise person in their community, uh, the teacher. And he said, you have been teaching us. You have been the wise man in our community this week. And I wanted to honor that by giving you this necklace. Uh, so I start crying and he starts crying and there are two grown men crying and hugging in the middle of the Melbourne airport. Um, I tell that story because I want to remind us that sometimes the best stories of our lives, the moments when our spirituality and our spiritual walk um, changes in a very positive, dramatic way, sometimes it's not our own story that brings about the change, it's the story of others. It's the story of another person or another narrative that becomes an important part of our story. And I say this because uh, we want to focus today on the Book of Lamentations and on the spiritual practice of lament and how lament is not always the story of our suffering, but sometimes the telling of another's suffering and calling into the narrative of our communities the story of those who might not be in our communities but who are suffering very significantly. And we're going to do this by looking at the Book of Lamentations. Many of you are already familiar with the book. I uh, thought I'd give you a quick background on the history, the context of the Book of Lamentations. Uh, uh, most of you know that Israel at one point had been this great nation uh, under King David and King Solomon. It had flourished greatly and was one of the powerful nations in, in the ancient Near East at that time. But we know that the subsequent kings were not as godly as David and Solomon, so they began to follow idols and worship other gods and disobey the, the commandments of God. And so after many, many generations of this, God needed to bring punishment upon his people who had fallen away. And so um, the Assyrians come and wipe out the northern kingdom, and the uh, Babylonians come and wipe out the southern kingdom, and all that's left is the capital city of Jerusalem. And eventually the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, and this once great city, David's city, falls. And the Babylonians, so upset at these people for resisting, decide that they're going to send them away into exile. Uh, and exile for the people of God meant that they took the prophets, the priests, the kings, the learned, the intellectuals, uh, the young men who could rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they took them away into exile, which of course is where we know the story of Daniel and his friends. And so um, 
anybody who had the capacity to rebuild the, uh, the city of Jerusalem was taken away, which meant that the city of Jerusalem was less, left in devastation. Homes were destroyed, fam families were ripped apart, uh, all the leaders were taken away. This is, without a doubt, the, the most broken moment, the, the most devastating moment, the lowest point in Israel's history. They've lost everything. And the question then will be not, is this a moment of devastation and a moment of suffering and a moment of pain, but how will God's people respond to this moment of suffering and moment of pain? Uh, they could, you know, run away and hide and say, we're done. We're not going to be God's people anymore. We're going to just run away and give up, give up. Um, or they could say, well, the Babylonians beat us. If you can't beat them, join them. We're going to just become like the Babylonians and worship their gods. Or the third alternative that we want to focus on today is not run away and hide, not give in to our conquerors, but to actually take the moment to lament and cry upon God and trust that God will respond to our lament. Lament is the appropriate liturgical, ecclesial, theological, spiritual response of God's people when they're confronted with pain and suffering and tragedy. It is the appropriate response. But what we often find in the church is that we don't respond with lament. We respond with celebration or we re respond with arrogance. Oh, we're going to be okay. We're the church after all. We're going to respond with um, uh, doubling down on our human capacity. Oh, we'll figure this out. We're smart people. Oh, we're godly people. God would never judge us. And um, what we see in the book of Lamentations is the appropriate response, not to fall back on our arrogance, not to fall back on our own sense of exceptionalism, not to fall back on our, our capacity to do good things, but really to fall before God and cry out, God, we need your help. Lament. Uh, this is very evident in three chapters, uh, the five chapters, Lamentations chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 are written in the genre of the funeral dirge. Uh, the larger genre of Lamentation, of course, is the genre of lament, uh, but the sp specific genre of chapter 1, 2, and 4 is the specific genre of the funeral dirge or the funeral lament. And it's pretty simple that the funeral dirge is the moment that there is a death, and you have to deal with that death, and you'll give an appropriate liturgical response to that death. Now, think about this with me then. Uh, I'm a seminary professor, and when I teach on uh, worship and, and certain things that churches do, uh, I would never say to one of my students, you should behave the same way at a funeral that you behave at a hospital service, right? You have a hospital service, funeral service, they're the same thing. Well, obviously they're not the same thing. They're two very different things. One's a dead body, a funeral service, and the other is a living body, a hospital visit. So no matter how sick a person is, you're still dealing with a, a living body and you're doing a hospital visit for a living body. So you can't go to the same mindset to a hospital visit that you're going to go to a funeral service. You can't go to a funeral service and say, you know what, this person isn't really dead. He's, he's going to be okay. So we're going to anoint him with oil and gather around and say a prayer and he'll get up and he'll be okay tomorrow. You can do that at a hospital visit. You can't do that at a funeral service because there's an actual dead body in the room. I think for many of us, especially in the West, we'd like to have so much confidence in ourselves and, and our capacity to fix the problems and our capacity to fix the world that we forget that we're not at a hospital visit, but that sometimes we're dealing with a funeral because there are dead bodies in the room. Uh, for us in the United States, it's very much the dead bodies of, of a racial history that has killed, in particular, black bodies, black lives that were killed 
uh, in our nation's history that were considered disposable and done away with. And we've got to deal with the dead bodies in the room. Uh, we got to deal with the dead bodies of Native Americans or First Nations because there is a long history of the considering Native bodies or First Nations people as disposable. And our history is littered with dead bodies that we have left around and never dealt with. When we talk about the tragedy in our world right now, whether that is COVID or the economic downturn or in the United States, the, the devastation and the conflict around uh, a, a profoundly dysfunctional racial history, uh, those things we can't ignore because there are dead bodies there. Uh, we've got to deal with the pain and suffering, the reality of that pain and suffering, instead of sweeping under the rug. We can't say, you know, I, we, we're going to get this figured out. We, we've already fixed the problem when you, you really haven't. Um, oh, oh, you know what? We don't need to deal with First Nations issues. That was a long time ago when you really haven't. Uh, we've got to deal with the reality of dead bodies in the room because God is calling us not to a funeral service, not to a hospital visit at this moment, but to deal with the reality of a funeral service. And Lamentations chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 reflect that. But one of the obstacles to having this type of service that is needed, a type of lament worship that is needed, is that oftentimes when we are encountering the need for lament, our instinct is to run away from lament because we feel like, but, but God, we're your people. God, we are your chosen people. We are the exceptional people. The church is the, the bride of Christ and we're, we're without blame or, or blemish. And that is true. We will be offered to God without blame or blemish. But that doesn't mean we haven't sinned. It doesn't mean that we are as church are so perfect and exceptional that we are going to, in this moment, do all the right things. So one of the problems in uh, Lamentations is that the people of God resist lament because they call upon their own sense of exceptionalism and their belief in their own triumphalism. We are going to win. We are going to be victorious. We are going to get over these problems. And the church, in its arrogance, continues to say things like this, to say, you know what? Yeah, there's COVID, but God's not going to harm us. We can meet whenever we want. Yeah, yes, there's a pandemic out there that's killing many, many people, but we're okay as long as we worship and pray. We're going to be okay. God's not going to harm us. Uh, or there's, there's this long history of race uh, and, and racial conflict and the way we've treated African Americans and the way we've treated uh, First Nations, but that's okay. We're, we're, we're God's chosen, forgiven people. We shouldn't have to deal with all that mess. That's somebody else's problem. We are God's chosen people. We don't have to deal with that. So in Lamentations 2 and 4, we see this repeatedly, where Yahweh is the actor. Yahweh is the one that acts, and he acts against Jerusalem. He acts against God's people. You see this repeatedly where Yahweh is followed by a strong verb, tore down, wrecked, destroyed, tore apart. And repeatedly, God does the act of tearing down. In other words, he's judging his people. And part of that judgment is tearing down their self-perception of exceptionalism. We are God's chosen people. We are special. No harm can come to us. And Yahweh in his strength has to come and tear that down. Tear down that sense of exceptionalism. Tear down that sense of we are better than others. Tear down that sense of we are going to fix this on our own. He keeps tearing that down. And in the place of tearing down, the lament can actually occur. 
this is something that is maybe difficult to hear, that there are times when God's judgment is appropriate. There are times when God needs to tear down. There are times when we have so built up a false narrative about ourselves that we're special, that we're exceptional, that we're better than others, that we don't sin as much as others, or even if we do sin, God forgives us, and we can do what we want, and God's going to protect us. That kind of false narrative, that kind of arrogance needs to be torn down. Yahweh, the actor, the, 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 the protagonist needs to come in and in a strong way tear down that arrogance tear down that pride. That's tough to hear because again, in the West and in North America, we believe that North American Christians are exceptional. After all, weren't we the ones that send out missionaries? Aren't we the one that uh, grew Christianity throughout the world? And there is this arrogant, this sense of exceptionalism that prevents us from seeing the pain and suffering that is in our world, some of which we might have caused. I think, for example, about the, the Doctrine of Discovery, some of the work that I did in my latest book, where the Doctrine of Discovery is a series of papal bulls and a series of proclamations by the Church that said that Europeans, those of European descent, are exceptional, and those who are of African, Native, First Nations, and other um, uh, nationalities and ethnicities, they're not exceptional. They're not quite made in the image of God, and so it allowed... Europeans to take Africans as slaves and allowed Europeans to view the North American continent as a blank slate, a tabula rasa, terra nullis, and you can just go and conquer that entire land and wipe out the people that are on that land. These were theological problems, a theological problem of exceptionalism and triumphalism, and that is part of what needs to be continued to be torn down. Torn down because it prevents us from lamenting. It prevents us from dealing with the fact that we might have caused the dead bodies that are in the room right now, the dead bodies of slaves, the dead bodies of African Americans under Jim Crow, the dead bodies of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, George Floyd, uh, the dead bodies of First Nations people. These bodies have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with with a funeral dirge, not a hospital visit. So what then can we do in response as God's people? How do we respond um, to God's judgment of us? Well, here's the good news. Here's the hope that I see in what feels like a, a, a horrific, destructive judgment. And that doesn't sound like good news, but it actually is. It actually is hopeful. Because in Lamentations chapter 3, it talks about God's faithfulness. The word there in Hebrew is actually chesed, which sometimes it's translated as uh, loving kindness. But it's really more than that. It's, it's, the literal definition is actually covenant loyalty, means that God's character of faithfulness is committed and rooted in His covenant loyalty. What does that mean? It means that when God makes a covenant with us, when He makes, builds a relationship with us, and He is going to abide by what He says. He's loyal to that relationship. And part of the relationship between God and Israel was that when Israel sinned, God would need to punish and that is his covenant loyalty, his faithfulness. He has to be faithful to his holiness. He has to be faithful to his righteousness, to his justice, and therefore he needed to punish sin. But here's the good news. Covenant loyalty cuts both ways. If God is going to be loyal to the covenant of justice that says, I must bring justice when there is injustice, I must bring punishment when there is sin, God is also loyal to the covenant of grace and the offer forgiveness and redemption, even in the midst of suffering and pain. 
This is the good news of Lamentations, that when we acknowledge our sin, when we turn to God and say, God, you were righteous to judge. You were righteous to judge us for our sin of greed. You were right to judge us for our sin of racism. You were right to judge us for our sin of materialism, our sin of lust, our sin of, of all the things that you know we are guilty of. You were right to judge us and your faithfulness, your loyalty to the covenant demanded as such. But we are also clinging to the other half of that covenant loyalty in, uh, in Lamentations 3, that chesed that says, he who is, who is loyal and, and, and faithful to judge will be loyal and faithful to forgive. And that's the hope that we have. The God who judges is also the same God that who forgives and redeems. And therefore, if he judges, then he will also redeem. We begin to see this in Lamentations 5 in a very unique and powerful way. Lamentations 5 is the kind of the close of this book. It doesn't end on that happy note that we want to see, but it does end on a hopeful note. Uh, here's the background of this. Um, people have kind of questioned the authorship of the book of Lamentations, and it's a pretty interesting uh, analysis that, uh, as I said earlier on, that because of the exile, uh, all the learned were probably sent away into exile. Prophets, priests, kings, literate, uh, intellectuals, they were all sent away into, into exile. Uh, so there probably was no one left who could read or write, because someone who could read or write could actually uh, help to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We do know, however, there was one person for sure that was allowed to stay behind who could read or write, and that was actually the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, repeatedly says and tells his people, give up. The Babylonians are coming, but they are the righteous judgment of God. Therefore, give in to the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians thought Jeremiah is on our side. We'll let him stay behind. So we know that Jeremiah, who could read or write, was one of, if not the only person who could read or write, who was left behind in the city of Jerusalem. So he's given credit for the writing of Jeremiah. But there's a problem. If you look at the writing style of Jeremiah and compare it to the writing style of Lamentations, it is two completely contrasting styles. Uh, I say it's like Shakespeare and Bob Dylan, or Shakespeare and Kendrick Lamar. Uh, you, they're all great writers, but they're probably not the same person. Their style of writing is too different. Their approach to writing is too different. And that's how it is with the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. So we know Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, but did he write Lamentations when the style of writing is so different? Well, here's the answer. Uh, Jeremiah was probably the only literate person left, so he was the one that wrote down the words. But they're not his words, because they don't sound like the words of Jeremiah. They're the words of the ones who have been left behind, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick, those that had been deemed by Babylon, well, they can't rebuild Jerusalem. They're women, they're children, they're widows, they're orphans. They're, they can't do anything about this. So they're allowed to stay, and it's their voices that gather at the town square, the city gate, and begin to cry out to God. And Jeremiah is there writing down, not his words, but their words. There's a pretty good lesson there for me, that the learned, the privileged, powerful uh, prophet who had the the capacity to say the right things in their mind. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't take that privilege. He steps out of the way. He puts down the power and he puts aside his privilege. And he doesn't speak. He actually has the people speak. The people pray. The people cry out. 
And that's why Lamentations is oftentimes considered the most feminine book of the Bible, because it's not Jeremiah's voice. Jeremiah is simply writing down the voice of the people, and in this case, mostly the widows and the orphans, those who have been suffering the most in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the fall of Jerusalem. Um, this is something that I feel is so important right now in a world that is falling apart in so many places that we don't listen to those who think who have all the answers. Oh, we're rounding the corner. We're going to fix this thing. No problem. But we listen to those that have been hurt the most, those that have suffered the most. Oftentimes the voices of women who've lost their children or, or, or women who've lost their husbands and, uh, or people who've lost loved ones, those who have suffered the most. Um, these are the voices we need to hear. In fact, that's what happened in Lamentations chapter 5. Uh, it's the moment that the people of God pray to, to God himself directly. Uh, it becomes a more standardized lament in Lamentations 5. It's just cries and bits and snippets of people crying out to God throughout the first four chapters. But by chapter 5, we come to a moment where God's people are praying for themselves speaking directly to God. Jeremiah has empowered them so that they can pray directly to God. If uh, there's something that I want to do as a professor and as a pastor and as a teacher, it is to empower other voices so that they can speak up. That the privileged voice that I have, the powerful voice that I have, because I'm a professor, because I'm a teacher, that I would set that aside so that the voice of the marginalized, the voice of the oppressed, the voice of the suffering, their lament may be lifted up and intercede for our nation and for our people and for this world. As I said earlier, I've been teaching at uh, Stateville Correctional Center, uh, a max security prison um, in, uh, here in Chicago. And um, we've lost several people to COVID because of, of the, the pandemic hitting prisons first because of the circumstances, of course. Um, and in many cases in the Max Prison, it's mostly black, brown bodies, uh, ethnic minorities who are disproportionately in prison, and they're the ones that died first because of, of this situation. Um, I've been teaching there now for three years, and I remember the first time I went into uh, Stateville. Uh, I'm an Asian, and I'm also relatively short. I'm, I'm five foot seven and a half on a good day. Um, and most of the men in, in Stateville are, are, are African-American. It's about 80% African-American, uh, 15, 20% Latino. Uh, a smaller percentage of, of whites of whites in the in the, in the prison. Uh, so I'm a small Asian guy, and I walk into a classroom filled with tall, mostly black men. Um, and so, in a sense, I had to kind of make sure that they knew I was in control, that I had the power. Yeah, so I really asserted my degrees and my education, my my intellectual prowess in the classroom, and because yeah, I gotta I gotta let them know who's in charge here. And so that's what I did uh, in my first class that I was teaching to let them know I'm the professor. I'm the one with the degrees, I'm the one with the knowledge, you all are my students. Uh, it actually didn't last very long. And it didn't last long because they were uh, you know, coming against it. They were so kind and generous and, and gracious to me. It, last, it didn't last long because of me. And what happened was that semester, about three plus years ago, uh, was the most difficult time period of my life. Just things were falling apart everywhere in my life. And I was trying to keep it together in the classroom, but after about seven, eight, nine weeks of it, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't keep it together. And so in one of the classroom towards the, uh, after the midpoint of the semester, I actually kind of fell apart in the classroom. I, I, I just couldn't keep it together. Um, and a lot of that pain and, and, and struggle that I was going through, the lament that I needed to speak out, I, I, I started falling apart in front of my students. Uh, and I, I won't forget, it was um, Corzell. 
uh, Corzell is the guy you think about when you think about a Chicago area prisoner. He's about six foot four, cut, tattoos, gold teeth, African-American, grew up in one of the roughest neighborhoods in Chicago. Uh, and he comes over to me and he sees that I'm, I'm falling apart and he whispers in my ear, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I really think you need this. And he holds me and he hugs me and he just lets me cry in his arms. At that moment, I wasn't the educated tenured professor with the degrees and he was not the south side of Chicago uh, prisoner. We were just two people made in the image of God, lamenting and crying out to God. Uh, the next week, when I went back to class, one of my students had figured out how to say, Dear brother, I love you, in Korea, and said that to me in the class. Another one of my students uh, painted a picture for me a few weeks later and said, I, I thought of you as I was painting this picture. It was a beautiful uh, picture. And he said, um, I, I, this is you. And he thinks I'm a black man with a huge afro because it was a black man with a huge afro charging the gates of hell. And he says, this is you charging the gates of hell. You're going to overcome. These are the moments we realize that lament does not come from the powerful. Lament does not come from those who think they have it all together. But lament comes from those who we deem sometimes as the least of these, those we see as the most marginalized, the most outcast. But in that honesty of lament, that's when transformation occurs. That's when redemption occurs. Not in our power, not in our privilege, not in the, the good things that we think we deserve, but in our weakness and in the stories of those who have suffered. That's when the redemption and the lament gets cried out to God. My dear brothers and sisters, cry out to God, lament before God, tell the stories of others who are suffering in our world, tell the stories of those who are in the need to express their lament, maybe can't do it, be the voice for those who can't speak out, be the voice for those who are suffering, be the lament for your community, because our neighborhoods, our communities, our churches, our world is in desperate need of a lament that cries out to God. God bless you.